I want to, I'm calling this message Life in Three Scenes. I sat with it for a while. Uh, I was thinking, you know, I, I tried to pray um, months ago about what this service was to look like. I knew that I would be here and that uh, I wouldn't be at the other campus. I'd be here with, uh, with all of you. And so I was thinking about this message and uh, I was brought to the passage. And it's in your handout. You can follow along there. If you have your Bible, so your Bible app, any, anything will do. In 1 Corinthians 15, I want to read what is kind of the foundational passage for what we want to kind of sort of utilize as our template. Paul's writing. He define, what he does here is define the core of the gospel. So even if you're a person who has no familiarity with the way of Jesus, what you're going to read right here is essentially the core foundational teaching of Christianity. If you want to narrow it down to a nutshell or to the core of the fruit, you will look at this passage and you'll understand what essentially the gospel is. The gospel is the good news. By the way, the Paul who wrote this was not always a believer, but he became a radical one. He says, now I would remind you, brothers, he's writing to other believers, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received and in which you stand and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of the first importance what I also received. And here it is, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and then he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So here we see the threefold core of the gospel. It is the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. And again, it's what I want to use as our template as we're having this time together on this Easter Sunday. Specifically, I want to run through and utilize a portion of Luke's account. And I want to sit with it and look at what he described as happening on that unforgettable Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, as we look at the way he describes the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And um, again, my hope, my earnest desire, my prayer, is that all of us, wherever we are, in the, the spectrum of faith, some of us are new believers. We, we, that's how, if someone were to ask us, have you been following Jesus for a while? We would say, well, it's really only been for a little while, but I'm very sincere in it. Others of us maybe are here, and we've been following him for a number of years. And it's sort of become so ingrained and intertwined to our life that we would never see our life apart from that walk with Christ. That's part of who we are. There may be others of us who are just guests, and I don't mean that in a just, like, whatever kind of way. I mean that you're here because someone invited you to come who you care about. Or perhaps you felt like, you know, it's Easter, I might as well go. Maybe the one time a year that I go to a church and someone invited us to come. Maybe we don't even know a lot about the message of Jesus. And so 
you know, depending where we are, and again, there are others of us who might be, we are genuinely seeking. Like we're at crossroads in our life. We're serious. We're pursuing spiritual truth, and it's brought us to consider Jesus. Wherever we are, I'm convinced the Lord wants to meet us. For those of us who've been following him just for a little bit, I think he wants to encourage us to do this for the long haul. For those of us who've been following him for a while, keep our hearts tender and fresh before him. For those who are seeking truth to really consider these words that Jesus makes and the claims he makes and what he did for us. And then for those of us who maybe are just passive observers, but nonetheless we're here, um, if nothing else, you will have a better sense of what it means when we talk about Jesus and why his death actually meant something and why his resurrection is so important. You'll come out of this with greater knowledge. So wherever we are, what I'm hoping is and believing that there will be, we will be given something that will move and touch our hearts. So here's how I'm going to describe it. I'm going to call it three scenes. And I'm going to talk about life scene number one. And we'll just start with that. Life scene number one, death. The death of Jesus. You can see in your handout, Luke 23. I want to read through this. But before I even get to that, I need us to use our imagination. Maybe some of us are familiar. We, we grew up seeing... Perhaps Jesus on the cross, almost everyone has seen that image in some way, shape, or form. It's consistently being shown to us. But by the time we come to Luke 23, Jesus is hanging on a cross. He's hanging on a cross. He's hanging helplessly between two thieves on a hill that they called Golgotha because it was shaped like a skull. And the Romans had cruelly and um, with, with a certain type of violent passivity under the orders of Pilate, the governor, put Jesus to death. And it was an awful thing to see. Jesus had been hammered. Roman crucifixion was brutal. They had borrowed it from, the, I think, the Assyrians, but they had perfected it to an art form of slow death. And it was designed to warn people, do not cross Rome. If you do, you will pay a price. And so they, when they put people on a cross, it was not just to, to put the person through the torment. It was that. But it was designed to send a message. And Jesus, through a variety of different movements, as he said, he allowed himself to, to suffer like this. But he had ended up on the cross. At this moment, as we jump in here, he's hanging on the cross. Um, he has been there since, we would say, nine in the morning. And he is... He is a mess. Again, the two thieves next to him. He's hanging, hung in space with nails on pieces of wood. Painful. Uh, if you were to look at people who knew him, probably had a hard time looking at him. Because the beautiful one, I, you almost had to turn your eyes away. He had been marred. He had been beaten. I mean, he had been beaten and bloodied. Uh, you recall they toyed with him. They beat him. They whipped him. The Romans were having fun with him. They ended up putting a crown of thorns. They mocked him. They pressed it down on his head. Um, blood had flowed. And then they hit him and they said, tell us, great king. You know, again, it was just, it was, they were toying with him. They, they were callous. They were cruel. They were the worst of humanity in some ways, part of all of us in some ways. And then they, when Jesus was forced to carry his own cross, he couldn't do it physically. He was a man in his prime. He was a carpenter. 
in terms of his physicality, he was strong. He faltered. He couldn't even, they had to call someone out of the crowd, a man named Simon, just to help him carry the cross. Couldn't do it. Faltered. By the time he got thrown onto it, he was so tired, so weak, uh, bloody. His blood was drying. He was already beaten to a pulp, hot, puffed up. He gets hammered onto that wood and he gets stuck up there at nine o'clock. He's hanging. He's hanging there. Now, the way the Romans designed the cross was that it was to linger. So sometimes people actually could linger on a cross for, it, it could happen for two to three days. It, would utter, it was an agony. Again, if you had been someone who loved him, who, who had been touched by Jesus, been healed by Jesus, and you're seeing this, even from a distance, it's so hard. It would have been so hard. He's, he's disfigured. He's swollen. He's covered with blood. And, and, and he's having a hard time breathing. And every time he says something, and we have seven recorded sayings of Jesus, or seven sayings of Jesus that have been given to us through the Gospels. And every time Jesus said something on the cross, it, it, every word cost him something. Like it cost him something, right? That was his love. So let's look at verse 44. It says, By the time it was about noon, and darkness fell across the whole land until 3 o'clock. So watch what happened. I mean, it's interesting because the, sort of the cosmic significance of heaven invading earth and the natural phenomena of darkness that covers the land. It must have been eerie, almost like, a, like an eclipse. Because this is around 12 o'clock, so he's been there for about three hours, and around 12 o'clock, all of a sudden, there's like darkness that starts to sort of come over, possibly something eclipse-like, but it becomes clear that something is strange, something is going on here. The sun begins to um, not be viewed in the same way. It must have been eerie. Verse 45, it says, the light from the sun was gone. And suddenly the curtain in the sanctuary, this is interesting, thrown in, and it says, suddenly the temple, the, the curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn down the middle. The temple, the temple itself that we're talking about here was Herod's temple. Oh, and by the way, a portion of that temple still exists today. I asked them if they could show a little picture of what we call the Western Wall. It's always in the news. You can see this. This is very famous. This is the retaining wall, a retaining wall of Herod's temple that was there at the time of Jesus. What is being described here in this verse, 45, occurred in the temple that those two retaining walls sort of represented, right? That that, that retaining wall that you just saw there is a picture. In that temple was where there was this place called the Holy of Holies. And the Holy of Holies... If you were to go back in history, and, and again, the curtain sometimes is called a veil, but it was this, this, this curtain that it says was ripped, was this very thick um, curtain that was made out of, in the t original tabernacle, made out of blue and purple and scarlet and threads, and it was a yarn, and it was, it was designed to separate what was called the most holy place from the rest of the tabernacle and then the temple later on. That, that was the place, the Holy of Holies, where originally the Ark of the Covenant and the Ten Commandments had been. It was a place where only God's, God's presence, it said, was to dwell powerfully. And there was a veil, a curtain, that separated that from the rest of the temple where other people could go. But only in the Holy of Holies, the way it was set up in that holy place with the curtain, only one person could go one time a year into that place. The high priest. 
And, he, and that high priest, they tied a rope to him just in case the, the, the awesome presence of God was so intense that it was said that, that depending on how he went to represent the people to bring the sacrifice on the Day of Atonement, some of us may have heard the term Yom Kippur, still celebrated today, the priest would go in to represent the people with a blood sacrifice. It was a foreshadow of the ultimate lamb that would take away the sin. It was to cover the sins of the people. In fact, if you read in the book of Hebrews, I just asked if they could put this up, you'll see a verse in Hebrews 9, 7. It says this, But only the high priest, look at this, ever entered the most holy place. That's the place where that curtain that you just read about that was split when Jesus dies, that's where it was. It says only the high priest ever entered the most holy place and only once a year. And he offered, he offered, look at this, he he always offered blood for his own sins and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. So with that in mind, it was that sacred place, that sacred space, if you will, will where the presence of God was said to dwell. It was there that this stunning event occurs. As Jesus is laying aside his life on the cross, literally giving it away as a sacrifice on our behalf, as the ultimate Lamb of God. It says that the veil in the Jerusalem temple, that second temple that we still see, the, we can still see the wall uh, around, Herod's, was said to have been, like that veil was said to have been, now again, this is according to some historians, we can't prove it because we don't know, but by most accounts, it was an, an impressive uh, veil. It was like a huge curtain, huge and it was like, like almost, some people said, 60 feet high, 30 feet wide. And depending on who you read, could have been anywhere between two to four inches thick. And what we're told here is that when Jesus, right before Jesus dies, that as it's happening, that that, that curtain is dramatically, uh, supernaturally rent torn down from the top to the bottom, right? To top to the bottom, not from the bottom up, from the top down. It was ripped asunder. That's the description here. And, it, and when that happened, that what, what Luke is describing here, when it happened, it must have felt like an earthquake, right? It, I was, because I was, I was, it essentially echoed like a crash, like a, like a ripping of thick material with devastating impact, shredded like, a, a, like this massive curtain, shredded like a piece of paper, exposing all of a sudden for the first time the Holy of Holies opens up as that curtain is shredded with no hand. That's what's described. I, I, you can't see any pictures of it, but I found an artist's rendition, at least to look at it a little bit, just to give us something in our mind's eye. Say, hey, can you put something up there? Just give it an idea. And now what that reminded us of was that it, what happens there, right, is that it's reminding us that the, on the basis of Jesus' sacrifice and why it's such a big deal is because it's saying now what God was saying to us. And again, some of us will appreciate this. Some of us may not as much. But it was basically saying is that the ultimate sacrifice has just been given. And no longer will God dwell in a temple made with hands, separated by a curtain. But now he will dwell in the heart of every believer, every believing man or woman. And no money can buy it, no good work obtain it. It becomes God's gift to us if we will receive it. The very presence of God now accessible to a human heart because of what Jesus has just done. The temple is opened up 
And now God's presence can live within us because of the sacrifice of the ultimate Lamb of God that was only foreshadowed in the past, but now is being fulfilled. That's the picture we're given. Oh, and if you read, um, I believe it's Mark's account, he, sa- he tells us one of, the, one of the seventh sayings that Jesus says. It's the what he utters in the sixth one, which is right on the heels, which right before, I guess the seventh one is right under, underneath it. This is where, this, listen to me on this one, see if I can capture it right. As Jesus is there and he's giving up, he is, he is choosing his death moment. He's giving up his spirit. It says it, that he cried out, it is finished, right? And I imagine him lifting himself. That, that was the second to last thing he says, right? When he says that, it is finished, evidently it was right then that the, that the veil is ripped asunder, right? This thing breaks open. And then Jesus, right in that moment, takes one final breath as we read here and says, and and initially I had forgotten about this, but it says he shouted this, and it's in verse 46. He says, Father, into your hands I entrust my spirit, right? So it is finished. The thing hits, the whole thing rips apart. Into your hands I commit my spirit, right? It was there, right there in that moment. He shouted. Look what it says. And with those words, he breathed his last. That was the last thing he did was entrust himself to the Father. It is finished. Father, who he had felt forsaken from, into your hands I entrust my spirit. That was it. It was an unashamed commitment of trust. It was stunning. In its tragic majesty, blood dripping down sun-parched lips, right? The words are uttered in victorious anguish. Powerful picture. Oh, it was what we call Good Friday. Why was it Good Friday? What was good about that? It's good not because of what happened to Jesus. Listen, loved ones. But because of what happened for us. That's why we call it Good Friday. Not because of what happened to him. What happened to him was awful. But what happened for us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whoever would believe in him would not perish. But would have the undying life of God overflowing. For God did not send his son into this world to condemn it. But that the world through him might be saved. And the resurrection is the key to that. Because if he rises, that means we rise. That means life wins. We'll talk about that in a moment. But Jesus was. I just want to pause for this and try to connect it here. He was the picture of forsakenness and abandonment. He was mysteriously forsaken by his father on our behalf. Remember, one of the other things he says on the cross is my, earlier, he says, and people probably didn't understand what he's talking about. He says, my God, my God. We actually have the original language, the Aramaic he uses, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He feels the distance from the father as he's bearing the sins of the world, our sin. He feels the forsakenness. He who knew no sin becomes sin. The Bible says that we might be made right with God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But now we see him, even that, in that place of abandonment, and again, mysteriously 
abandoned by his father. And of course, you, uh, what I'm trying to drive home is on the cross, Jesus was utterly abandoned. He was forsaken. He was all alone. He felt forsaken by the Father on our behalf. And then, if you look at it, if you were to look around, there were no disciples. The closest thing he had were some of the women and John. But, very, but, but none of the rest were anywhere close. No one was there fighting for him. No one was there to the very end. No. In fact, I, I remember a quote that I read from, from theologian Martin Gilmore, and he said this. He said, he had tried to teach a handful of men to be his disciples, followers. One of them had betrayed him, Judas. Another one, what, had denied him, Peter. Oh, Peter. My number one. Had nothing to do with the man. By the time it was done, he was through it all. That's a whole other story. None of them understood him. All had fled. He had nobody. He invested three years in these. Three years. He ate with them. They watched him work. They heard his words. They saw people healed. But when it all melted down, they, it, it was like a tsunami. An emotional, mental, spiritual tsunami. And they did not have the capacity to get through it, and so they ran. Initially, they tried to fight. Peter did. He pulled out a sword, remember? He slices off the ear of this guy whose name we actually are told, some, this guy named Malchus, who I'm assuming ends up becoming part of the early church, because otherwise we wouldn't have known his name. Jesus, takes, <laughs> Jesus does surgery on the man and reattaches his ear. That's what the Bible says. It was sliced, and he, he heals it. And then he says, then they all ran. And Jesus said, put the sword. Okay, I'm, now I'm way off course here. But he says, <laughs> he says to Peter, and Peter, because see, Peter can fight. But he doesn't have enough in him to stand once the adrenaline's gone. So he'll fight for Jesus in the moment. He pulls out the sword. Jesus' disciples were armed. He pulls out the sword, and he slices to fight for Jesus. Jesus says, put away the sword. Those who use the sword will die by the sword. Put the sword away. All things are as they should be. Again, take me where you need to take me. Judas was the one who showed him where, to, where it was. He kisses him. That's not what a kiss is for. They take Jesus. That's how it all starts, right? So no, he was all alone. That was my, my, big, my, my point here is that when you're seeing Jesus on the cross, he's abandoned, he's alone in the darkness of it all. That's what struck me. I was sitting here, I was going, Lord, when I was just starting to think about this message, I thought, Lord, you were all alone. You were all alone. You, were, you, you, had, you experienced, again, that forsakenness by the Father. Um, and, then, and yet, after that, even in the darkness, even in the pain, even in, the, even in everything that was so awful, at the end, at the end, Father, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit, right? I, I love that. I thought, Lord, that's the cry of trust in the dark. That's what I hear. Immersed in the pain and the tragedy and the suffering and the abandonment and the horror and the crushing comes the cry of trust into your hands, right? Right there. And here's what I want some of us to hear this Easter. I don't know who was going to hit. I know it helped me. But this Easter, here we go. May we trust him 
in the darkness as well. And also place our spirits into his hands. Some of us, listen, not all, but some of us may feel forsaken. Some of us may say, life has not gone my way. Maybe, maybe there are things that aren't working well, or there's a critical relationship that is degraded, that is, or that we've lost. It's literally been torn out of our heart. Uh, maybe some of us feel like Jesus felt, abandoned. Maybe we're feeling abandoned emotionally. Maybe some of us feel very alone. Listen, in our struggle, no one knows about it. We struggle, are very few. Maybe some of us are, are alone in our question or in our pain, or perhaps it's a private pain, again. Some pain is seen, some pain is not. And just because we know him, even, does not mean there aren't questions and things that are hard. I look at Jesus. No one was close to the Father, but he felt that pain of separation and loneliness. When the darkness settles in, I want us to be able to, I want to encourage us when we, when our cries in the dark seem to go nowhere. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When they seem to go nowhere, remember, please, to follow in the way of Jesus and place our trust in the Father. I kept thinking, you know, when the darkness settles in, Lord, let us place our trust in you. When our health is failing, let me place my trust in you. When things aren't going the way I wanted them to go, let me place my trust in you. When I'm having a hard time doing the things I believe in, let me place my trust in you. When I'm having a hard time saying no to things that I don't even want in my life, let me place my trust in you. When there are areas that I wished were different, let me place my trust in you. See, I was thinking about this and I was thinking about, I was going hard. And for some reason I woke up this morning and I, was, I had this hymn on my mind, partly because I had noted it a couple days back. But some of us may remember the solid rock. Um, I know most wouldn't. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. And there's the verse. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. But it was the second verse that connected me to this message. When darkness seems to hide his face, there it is, I rest on his unchanging grace. Listen. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds, there it is, within the veil. That means in the presence of the Lord is where my anchor is. Do you see the connection? There. When darkness seems to hide his face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, the storms of life, my anchor holds. I place my trust with you. I place my trust with you. When darkness seems to hide his face, I place my trust with you. 
That's powerful. That's okay. All right. Oh, where are we? Okay, verse 47. Verse 47. Okay, it says, uh, when the Roman officer, look at this, when the Roman officer overseeing the execution saw what had happened, he worshiped God. He said, surely this man was innocent. When all the crowd that came to see the crucifixion saw what had happened, they went home in deep sorrow. They were stunned. They were broken. Uh, Jesus, it says in verse 49, but Jesus' friends, including the women, all the women, the most loyal of the group. That's the fact. Yeah, all right. <laughs> Where are all the guys? That's what I want to know. It says, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, they stood at a distance watching. It's picturesque. The beauty and the tragedy of devastated love and loyalty. Got to be there. Bad as it is. Life scene two. Burial. Life scene two. All I'm going to have us do is just read through this passage. It's not in your handout, so I'm going to scroll it on the screens on the sides. Now, there was a good and righteous man named Joseph. Okay? He was a member of the Jewish high council, the Sanhedrin. But he had not agreed with the decision and the actions of the other religious leaders. And he was from the town of Arimathea in Judea. And he was waiting for the kingdom of God to come. And he went to Pilate and he asked for, for Jesus' body. What he would not do necessarily when he was alive. At least he was willing to do in his death. I'm going to honor him. I'll take the cost. That's a whole other story. We could just talk about Joseph and Nicodemus. Then he took the body down from the cross. They wrapped it in a long sheet of linen linen cloth, and, and, they, and they laid it in a new tomb that had been carved out of the rock. That was done late on Friday afternoon. It was the day of preparation as the Sabbath was about to begin. And as his body was taken away, the women, there they are, from Galilee, followed. A lot of them were named Mary. Uh, <laughs> the women from Galilee followed and saw the tomb where his body was placed. And then they went home because no one could do work on the Sabbath. Friday, Saturday, Sunday. They went home and, and prepared spices and ointments to anoint his body. But the time that they were finished, the Sabbath had begun. So they rested as required by the law. So we see that those who loved him, we see them asserting their, their, themselves to honor him. Joseph of Arimathea was a, a member of the Sanhedrin in, in the body that had condemned Jesus, who turned him over to Pilate. They wanted him dead. They would have killed him themselves, but they did not have under Roman authority because remember, Rome ruled Israel at the time. They didn't have the authority to exercise capital punishment. They could ask for it and pursue it, but they could not do it. They needed Rome to sign off on that, and Rome did. Pilate did, even though he washed his hands and said, I find this man, no fault in this man, and did the ceremonial hand washing. Too bad. You still have to answer for that. Uh, and the, what do we see the other group? The women, the loyal ones, who, again, as I mentioned, they showed more courage and faithfulness than the group of men who had, whom he had poured so much into. Their, their, theirs was a loyalty that lingered, even in the face of disillusionment. And I wondered, because I was looking at their loyalty. Like, they were loyal even when it all melted down. And I thought, Lord, is our loyalty to you something that we can sustain even in the face of loss and deep disappointment? Is it something I can sustain when you don't give me what I want? or what I want you to do for me. 
In their case, it was a crushing blow, wasn't it? Traumatic beyond words. But their love and affection for Jesus was stronger than their disappointment. And, that, and what they could not understand was not allowed to overwhelm the love that they had known. And, and I just want to note this, if we can. May we who claim to love him, now I'm, now I'm talking to those who make the claim. May we have a love for Jesus that shows up whether or not things, listen, go our way, the way we were hoping. I think there's a theme here. This is the true test, you see. Most can love when it's easy. I'm in when you're on top. A week earlier, when everyone was welcoming Jesus in as Messiah, waving palms and crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, which meant there's Messiah walking his way into Jerusalem. It was great to be associated with Jesus. The disciples loved it. Now, this is what we're talking about. Three years, and this is the payoff. People are seeing what we see. But one week later, whew, nobody, oh, it's just the whole thing melts down. And, and yet, I remind myself, Lord, it, the real test comes, honestly, and, you, and the Lord, mod, Jesus models it, right? It, he calls us to follow us. That the real test comes when things aren't going our way. Father, why have you forsaken me? Right? Put into your hands, I entrust my spirit. Okay, life scene three. Time, time check. Here we go. Resurrection. Okay, finish the last piece in your hand out there. Luke 24, but on the first day of the week, the early dawn, they went to the tomb taking the spices they had prepared and they found the stone that was rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. No, they were perplexed about this because there were these two men standing by them in dazzling apparel, is how Luke says it. And as they were frightened, they bowed their faces to the ground. The men said to them, a question, by the way, that is for everyone. Why do you seek the living among the dead? By the way, this is a great question. That, that fifth verse is a great question because that's exactly what a lot of people are doing today. Seeking the living among the dead. <laughs> Looking for answers in all the wrong places. There is no answer there. There's death there. Why are you seeking the living among the dead? It, I, seek... If we seek life in things that can bring no life, we will have no life. But if we seek life in him and he has to give it, we will find it. That's part of what Jesus meant when he says, if you're willing to lose your life, you will find it. Verse 6, he is not here, I tell you, but has risen. This heavenly, this heavenly angel says this. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man, Jesus, must be delivered in the hands of sinful man and be crucified, but that he would rise on the third day. On the third day he would rise. And then, verse 8, they remembered his words, which is exactly what we are doing right now. We are remembering his words. And may we who have known him and experienced him remember his words all the days of our life, always and ever. May they be near to our heart and on our lips till our dying day. When on the dying day, when resurrection and life mean everything. Now returning from the tomb, and we'll finish up here. 
They told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna the Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words, when, they, when, they, when the women told the apostles, <laughs> see their faith here. It says, when they told the apostles that what had happened, that they had seen this man in the, in, in the tomb, and this man had told them that Jesus is alive, and they told their story to the apostles. Look what it says to the disciples. These words, look at verse 11. This is how they received it. These words seemed to them like an idle tale, and they did not believe them. Come on! Oh, and by the way, if you go to the original Greek, that's the only time this word that we render idle talk is used in the entire New Testament. It's the word called leros. It means silly talk. What they were saying, <laughs> it was like, if you look at how it's used, it's used by someone who's, who's sick and del they're delirious, right? And they start babbling things that they, because they're traumatized or they're just out of it. That's the word that they use. You're wor they, they, we know you want to believe this. We get you want to believe this. We believe that emotionally you believe you believe this. But we don't think it actually happened. We think you're actually delusional. <laughs> That's what we think. Um, maybe you loved him so much that you want to believe this, but it just seems senseless, nonsensical. And honestly, we just, they just dismiss them. But look what it says. But Peter rose and he ran to the tomb, stopping, stooping and looking in. And Peter, and this is our last verse, he saw the linen clothes, cloths by themselves. And he went home marveling. Look at that. Marveling at what had happened. So the picture we are left with here is Peter's literally, he, he says, well, I'll at least go check out what they're saying. They go and check out. We know John was with him. That Peter's, as he's, Walking home, he actually starts to marvel at what he's just seen because clearly something happened. And it may, because the way he looks at the, clo the cloths and the way they were settled, it, it wasn't like someone just ripped them off of Jesus' body. They were actually settled as if whatever was in them had just been gone. And the cloths that wrapped went like this. And when Peter sees it, part of him is going, well, that should not have happened. Someone's taking his body. There's no way that would have happened. Maybe, maybe. Because if we believe what had happened, and I'll leave it with this. As we leave, may we take time to marvel and be filled with wonder. That's what I want us to do. As we make our way into this Easter day, because of what we believe happened, if it did happen, then everything has changed. The cosmic outcome of the human condition is forever altered, shifted. Life to come is real. Death is not the final word. If what Jesus said he was going to do actually indeed happens, as I believe it did, then listen, there is no area of our life that he cannot bring life, and there is no area of our life that will ultimately be defined by non-life. He is the giver of life in every dimension. And, if we, and, and I would say this, if we've never received the life giver, I believe that there's no better time than to receive him in your life now. Wouldn't that be so amazing? Easter 2018 was the day I asked Jesus into my life as my resurrected Savior. For others of us, it may be that we need to say, Lord, I don't ever want to let you go. And if I do, then I will experience you in three scenes. I will experience you certainly um, in my death, in my burial, and listen, for anyone who has Jesus, 
in our lives, our last words will be also the words of trust because our last words will be his life. Your death, your burial, your, res your resurrection. I want to wonder at it. Because see, some of us are going to leave this life earlier than we planned. And I'm wondering, someone says, well, don't we all? I don't know about that. I think we can live a certain, we can, I was talking to my wife, my wife about this. I said, you know, there's a certain point when we begin to, I think you get to a point of advanced age where the promise of Jesus and new life, new beginning, and new body, like the turning from winter back to, new, to spring becomes so meaningful. It, like, it takes on promise because this tent of mine cannot contain the life within it. And where did that yearning to live come from? From the very God who gave it. But between now and then, we get to choose how we're going to live the life. And I think we need to live that life as closely as we can with the living Savior. So not only is, a, is it a promise of life which is to, to come secured by his life, that helps me. It helps me. Because honestly, we get afraid. We can get afraid of dying. We can get afraid of growing older. We need to trust him. Though my outer one perish, my outer man perish, yet my inner one is renewed day by day. That the living Jesus can live within us, even when this body of ours can no longer can sustain us. For those of us who are younger, we cannot take life for granted. We do not know the last box in the calendar of our life. I do not know my day of departure. I know I will have one. And I pray that when I do, if I do, when I, if I have the ability to say it, that I will say, Father, Father, into your hands, I commend my spirit. The life I've lived for you here is but a prelude to the life that I'm going to live for you there. So it's not about escaping. It's about living life with the knowledge that this is not the end. Okay? That's the only way I can say it. So, well, maybe. I can say it in other ways, but this is the best way for me right now. So, after service, we're going to, we're going to do is, we're going to have our time of giving. If you're new here, I don't want you to feel pressure, but you can join us. But this is for our church community. It's how we have a church. <laughs> Faithfulness of our people giving is how we do it. Um, but afterwards, if some of you are feeling moved in some way, even if it's for one of three things, if you feel like, you know what, I think I might want to have someone pray with me to receive Jesus. Or you may feel that you've come to a point in your life on this Easter that you feel like you need to re recommit yourself to Jesus. Or three, you just feel like you've got something, such a deep trauma in your life right now that you just wouldn't mind a little bit of, a little bit of prayer for you to have life to trust. Right, wherever it is, there'll be a prayer team to my left. They'll be there. They'll linger after service. And then here's the other thing. In the coming weeks, four weeks in a row after this Sunday, I'm going to share, uh, Lord willing, a series that you, you called the, this idea of incognito. And uh, incognito is going to essentially pick up where this leaves off. What happens is there's this post-resurrection Jesus. After he's alive, he appears. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, but just listen to me real quick. He, after he appears, he has this astonishing conversation with two disciples. 
one of whose whom's name was Cleopas. They're walking on this road, the road to Emmaus, and Jesus joins them. They don't even know who he is. He starts talking with them. And there's this wonderful account. We're going to sit with it. We're going to explore the conversation of life and the blessing of brokenness. The next four weeks, we're going to do this together. We're going to continue this journey, if you will. But let me pray, and then we have our time of giving. While that's happening, the band's going to come back up. We're going to close. Alice has a beautiful song to share with us on the hope that Easter is all about for us. So I'm going to ask that God would just let this word settle into our hearts and let it just linger, okay? So let me pray. Lord, even now, I thank you for the privilege of being able to represent your heart with these wonderful people here in this room, uh, many of whom are part of this church, who, who have been so kind and have been so attentive. And so wherever we are in the spectrum of faith, I ask that you would speak to our hearts, and I pray for the tenderness of who you are to prevail over our lives. In the violence of what you suffered has come the tenderness and the love of God. And I can think again about that hymn, you know, when darkness seems to hide your face, I rest on your unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. I ask that we would find great strength in your presence so that whatever life presents us, we may walk through it courageously and in trust. Help us not to live in fear. I bind fear in the name of Jesus. I bind fear in our struggles, which we have. I have too. We all need your grace in some area of our lives. But your faithfulness is evidenced by the cross. You could give no more than you gave. You gave it all. There's nothing you held back. You didn't have to do it. You did it. And because of it, we experienced life. You gave your life so that I could have life and have it overflowing and abundantly. This is a hope that we share. And I ask that it would, would never leave our minds, never leave our hearts. May we never abandon you. Even when we don't understand, may we trust you. Lord, through the thick and thin, through what we see and what we can't see, while we're living and to the day we die, we trust you and then beyond it with our lives. Let faith grow in us. This is what I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.